Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear the latest on efforts to address water shortages affecting the Colorado River. Plus, we talk with Larimer County's Director of Public Health about the new indoor mask mandate going into effect this week and why it's needed. We have a ton of companies that are starting up that are focused on green energy technologies and sustainability. And we hear about a new center developing green technology at CU Boulder. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Vice President Kamala Harris is visiting Lake Mead today. She is scheduled to receive a briefing on dire water supply issues facing the Colorado River and deliver remarks making the case for President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure deal and Build Back Better agenda. This comes as water experts from across the West are speaking in front of Congress this week after a first day of testimony on Friday, bringing the supply issues of the Colorado River Basin to a national stage. More than two decades of drought are straining the region's supplies, and forecasts predict a hotter, drier future due to climate change. Declining levels in Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, have forced mandatory cutbacks for some users, and projections indicate that more are likely in the next few years. Alex Hager covers the Colorado River for KUNC, and he joins us now. Hi, Alex. Hey, Aaron. Bring us up to this point, if you would. The story has been ongoing drought and historic lows for the Colorado River. What do we need to know about where we are right now? Well, it is not breaking news, but the Colorado River is in trouble. It feeds 40 million people and a region with over a trillion dollars in economic activity. And now that there is less water in the basin, it's it's been referred to as a slow-moving train wreck. A lot of people would argue that it's becoming a fast-moving train wreck. Mm. And it's really been in the national spotlight for the last couple of months because of a shortage declaration. Basically, levels in Lake Mead got low enough that for the first time ever, we're seeing mandatory cutbacks in some parts of the basin. And right now, there's not a super clear path out of this. Uh, Water out in this region is finite, and there's more people moving to some of the big cities out here. Um, One of the speakers in this hearing, John Ensminger, who runs the Southern Nevada Water Authority, he made a big point that the only way out of this is for everyone to start using less. Here's what he had to say. The river community is at a crossroads. We have a simple but difficult decision to make. Do we double down on the promises of the last century and fight about water that simply isn't there? Or do we roll up our sleeves and deal with the climate realities of this century? And the decision makers out here, they need to balance the needs of agriculture, cities, and really any other person or business who turns on the tap. There are a lot of people vying for a slice of this pie, and the pie itself is getting smaller. Okay. So let's talk about the hearing then. What was this about and who was there? Yeah, this panel was a real who's who of the Western water world. You had seven states from Wyoming down to Arizona, and all the people representing them were, you know, folks who have a big stake in this and play a role in shaping its future. From Colorado, you had Becky Mitchell, who is the head of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. You also had Arizona's top water negotiator. You had the Assistant Secretary of the Interior and two prominent representatives from Native American tribes. Um, and, and the fact that it was a big, broad-reaching panel of people representing states and tribes with different needs 
needs and interests, that speaks to what they were talking about. How do we make sure that all these big agencies get their people the water they need, but, you know, still maintaining enough for the greater good? And that was really a big theme here. A lot of people saying we need to put our individual needs aside and focus on collaboration because, you know, if we don't do that, there's not going to be enough water for any of us. Right. So what if anything was decided? Is there any action that will come out of this? Well, the short answer is nothing was decided, but this was a really interesting chance to get all these kind of big water mines in the same room and on the public record. And most importantly, they could ask for what they needed from the federal government. They had the ear of people who, you know, actually set federal government policy. For a lot of the state water people, they were asking for federal money. There's a lot of new federal infrastructure funding that is earmarked for new and improved water systems, you know, pipes and storage and that kind of thing. In the hearing, there was a lot of talk about how to spend that and where the states need more. Uh, one of the tribal speakers, Daryl Hill, he asked the government to formalize the role of tribes in water negotiations. Historically, they have been pretty underrepresented, and some federal action could make their seat at the table a little bit more structured, a little bit more permanent. And until we see legislation that does any of the above, the big takeaway here is that this you know, gives us some insight into what the state leaders are thinking. Hmm. Well, what lies ahead, Alex? I mean, winter is coming up, but right now forecasts say it could be a dry one. Yeah, well, on the decision-making front for what's coming up, a lot of eyes are on the year 2026 when we'll see renegotiation of the drought contingency plan. Everyone's going to come back to the table, talk about who gets what when it comes to uh, wet water. And we'll see if the new policy calls for less usage. But when it comes to the weather and the climate... You know, this is one of those one of those time will tell scenarios. The Colorado River Basin gets most of its water and, and that water goes on to feed millions of people all the way down to Mexico. Uh, it gets that water from snow and rain in the mountains of Colorado and Wyoming. And everyone is keeping a close eye on precipitation this winter to see what falls there because we, we really can't afford to have another dry one. It is supposed to be a La Nina year, and that generally means a wetter and colder winter for the northwest, warmer and drier for the southwest. But, you know, it's hard to pinpoint where that dividing line is. If you're here in Colorado, I mean, that line runs kind of through the middle of the state to the point that even, you know, the northern mountains could get more snow and the southern mountains could get a little bit less. But, you know, at the end of the day, even an exceptionally snowy winter won't won't save us. It'll prevent catastrophe from happening in the short term. But because we're on year 22 of the drought, we'd need to see back to back to back to back years of good rain and snow to get out of this. And the scientists agree climate change means that things now are warm and dry and they're likely to stay that way. Well, lastly, Alex, lots of experts have noted for a while now how dire the situation is. Is there a sense that lawmakers in Washington feel perhaps a sense of urgency to do more? Yeah, well, this has been a big deal in this region. I think it's getting a lot of attention in Washington right now. Like we said, some of those federal projections for how much water is going to be available over the next few years have really forced this uh, into the spotlight. And uh, just today, actually, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is visiting Lake Mead and talking about how some parts of the Biden administration's infrastructure plan are aiming to uh, improve the water situation out here. That plan has uh, stalled a little bit uh, in D.C., but this is going to be a push for the Biden administration's plan and also just the fact that this hearing is happening uh, again Wednesday will be the second day of uh, hearing on Colorado River drought issues in front of the House uh, Natural Resources Committee. The fact that that's all happening means that I think there is some serious interest in, if not having federal action about uh, drought in the West, uh, having some federal attention to it and perhaps allocating some federal money. Alex Hager covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron.
A new Larimer County mask mandate requiring masks in all public indoor spaces will go into effect this Wednesday at noon. The mandate was announced last Friday, and it's an attempt to slow rapidly increasing case numbers of COVID-19, including the Delta variant. Larimer County public health officials say local hospital ICUs have been operating at or above capacity for the last four weeks. Forty percent of patients in Larimer County ICUs have COVID-19. Ninety percent are unvaccinated. Larimer County's public health director, Tom Gonzalez, joins us now to talk about the new mask mandate and what they hope it will accomplish. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Erin. Before we talk about the mandate, I just want to ask, how much has the spread of COVID changed in the last month or so? I would say in the last two to three months, Erin, with the Delta variant, it's a game changer. It's a very contagious uh, virus, much more than the uh, alpha And so we are really seeing pockets, especially non-vaccinated, unvaccinated people spreading at a very, very high rate. What are the current vaccination rates uh, looking like in Larimer County right now? You know, overall, Aaron, we've done a really good job with our eligible population. We're right at about 74 percent have at least received one dose. Uh, We're slightly under 70 percent for fully vaccinated with the mRNA. Uh, We're looking forward to the 5 to 11-year-olds getting approval from CDC and FDA because that'll be a big, big percentage of our population that that can't be vaccinated right now. But right now, it's about 30 to 35 percent that are unvaccinated and that we need to close that gap. Right. And it sounds like hospitalizations are back up, as we mentioned Hospitals are feeling pressures similar to last year, and some are, again, postponing non-emergency procedures to ensure they have enough capacity. Is that one of the factors driving the reinstatement of the mask mandate? Erin, that is the factor. Right now, it's really our hospitalization's ability to provide the standard level of care. They have been operating at or above ICU capacity, as you said, since mid-August. The analogy I've been using is this is a rubber band that's being stretched and it can only be stretched for so long when it breaks. We have got to give a break to our healthcare providers in the hospital so they can continue to treat all medical uh, urgencies within our community as well as those uh, situations that have been put off such as elective procedures. Now, I know Boulder County re-implemented a mask mandate in early September. I'm wondering if you are watching the results there and did did that inform the decision in Larimer County? Boulder is in a unique situation. They're about 10 percentage points higher in vaccination. That's about 30,000 more people vaccinated, as well as the face covering order. You And you see their hospitalizations way lower than ours. They, they were certainly down uh, under 20. They, Last week, we're at 91 in the hospital. You also see their case rate uh, much lower than ours, where we're at 260. They're under uh, 150. So those two combinations, vaccination and face coverings together, do work and do slow the spread of the virus. And that's what we need right now to give our hospitals a break. Well, let's talk a bit about the mask mandate in Larimer County. Where does it apply broadly and, and to whom? It all indoor settings, so uh, schools, businesses, recreational settings within doors. Uh, we're all asking people to wear a face covering at that time. And I understand there's a way for businesses to apply for an exemption to the mandate, and that's through the county's Vaccine Verified Facility and Event Program. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, what we're here is giving a, an opportunity for those businesses that already are uh, looking at vaccine requirements with their staff as well as uh, their customers that if they have a program and they have a, a signage posted and everybody that's in the building uh, or the facility is vaccinated, then they could apply for a waiver to wearing face masks. And in general, how long do you see the mask mandate being in effect for Larimer County? Are there specific thresholds for decreased case numbers or ICU beds or, or other metrics that you're looking to hit? Yeah, we're looking at the four main metrics that's on our COVID-19 dashboard. The case rate, the uh, percent positivity, number of patients in the hospital with COVID-19, and then the IC utilization. Right now, two of those metrics exceed our minimal threshold, and that's the number of patients in the hospital and the IC utilization. We need to get from 91 patients below 65, and we need to get our ICU utilization from 105 to below 90%. Once we can get that, then we would uh, keep the face covering order in for 21 days to make sure we don't have a bounce back up or a resurgence. And if we can maintain that, then we can remove the masks. I'm wondering, Tom, what are you hearing from business owners in the county? Well, first, the business owners, we're appreciative that we gave five days so they can get the signs up, uh, meet with their staff, uh, you know, talk with them about the change. I think that's the key. Uh, I do hear some businesses feeling like they shoulder much of this throughout the pandemic. I empathize and I respect that and appreciate everything they're doing. Uh, we're going to help them as much as possible. We do have an outreach team ready to uh, help um, answer questions and, and give guidance and give them signage. So we want to be a partner in this together with our businesses. Lastly, are, how are you incorporating testing into the overall strategy? And has there been an effort to uh, increase sites where testing is available or things like that? Yeah, it was about six weeks ago, Aaron. We made a partnership uh, with Mako Health, and they're providing testing five days a week in Larimer County, both at the Loveland and Fort Collins site. And they have now extended to Estes Park, I think two days a week up there. Uh, and what also Mako uh, is offering is much longer hours than we could here at the health department. So they're going all the way to 6 p.m. at night. So we are encouraging anybody that's a close contact or showing symptoms to immediately get tested at one of those sites. And it's on our website at at larimer.org backslash health. Tom Gonzalez is Larimer County's Public Health Director. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Have a great day. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Colorado is known as a leader in developing sustainable buildings and energy systems. The Front Range in particular is a growing hub for green technology research. A new research center at CU Boulder aims to take advantage of that existing momentum in the green tech industry and to catalyze new local growth in the field. The Building Energy Smart Technology Center, or BEST Center, is funded by the National Science Foundation. It brings academic researchers together with industry partners to push the field forward. Monsef Krarty is a professor of engineering at CU Boulder and the director of the new BEST Center, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you, Erin. Kyrie Baker is an assistant professor of architectural engineering at CU Boulder. She's also a faculty member at the BEST Center. Welcome, Kyrie. Hi, Erin. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Monsef, I want to start with you. You are the director of this new center. Tell me a bit about the focus of it. What is 
smart technology and what does it have to do with green buildings? Yeah, very good question. So, so the, our center, which, as you mentioned, is a building energy smart technology, focus on the future, what we think of the buildings that will be smart, meaning adaptive to both the climate that we know is changing, uh, as well as the need of power with the grid. And Kari will talk more about uh, the grid interactions between buildings and obviously the power generations. So we focus on adaptive technology, meaning technology that make the building relatively uh, resilient. And we usually use this term uh, sustainability and resiliency now together. Okay. And we're not just talking about individual buildings here, right? The research that you're talking about functions at the scale of entire communities. Uh, what does smart technology look like at a city level? Yeah. So at the city level and community level, there's building, but uh, there's also transportation. So our center will try to focus on those as well as a power generation. As you may know, we could now generate, even within building, uh, power, electricity, using solar, for instance. Okay? So our uh, center will focus on these aspects, meaning how to integrate energy efficiency with renewable, with actually buildings, as well as uh, uh, transportation. Now, the center is just getting off the ground, but I understand you already have some really exciting research projects going on. Can you tell us about just a handful? Yeah, uh, I'll be happy to. Uh, as I mentioned, we focus mostly on adaptive technology for building. You're, I'm sure you know about the smart thermostat, for instance. Thermostat actually regulate the temperature within space within your house, depends on what your uh, desire and needs, as well as your schedules. Similar thing, we, we are trying to develop what we call smart uh, insulation, meaning wall that actually adapt to the environment. So for instance, when it's very hot outside, you want and very cold, especially in this climate in Colorado, we want very high insulation, meaning there's not much heat is lost between the outside and inside. Uh, but when it's mild, it's actually the opposite. We want actually heat to the cooler air to come inside to cool uh, at least the, the building, similar to clothing. We wear different clothes in the winter versus the summer. That's the idea we're trying to explore with what we call switchable insulation systems. So there is a lot of uh, a system that we are trying to develop as part of the center now to adapt uh, at least to the buildings. Kyrie Baker, I want to bring you into the conversation. You're a faculty member at the center and your research focuses on smart energy grids. First of all, can you kind of walk us through what that means exactly, a smart energy grid? Of course. So before we started thinking more about how buildings in the grid interacted, it was a very basic relationship. It would be you would switch on a light bulb and you wouldn't think about or care about where that energy came from. So that paradigm is changing. So now we're getting devices like renewable energy in the grid, electric vehicles, energy storage, and we're getting people that are starting to think more about their particular energy footprint. So the smart energy grids refers to all these components that are now able to communicate and work together along with consumers to help achieve a sustainable energy future. And I'm curious how you're bringing resources from this BEST Center to bear on your research. Well, a huge part of what consumes electricity in the grid are residential and commercial buildings. 
So in order to help transition to renewable energy, we need people to not only be aware of where their electricity is coming from, but also change the way that they use electricity. So this could be through smart thermostats. It could be through what's called demand response programs. So getting paid to shift when you use electricity. Um, and there's a bunch of other techniques that we're going to explore in the Best Center. We're speaking with Monsef Cardi and Kyrie Baker. They both teach engineering at CU Boulder and work with the new Building Energy Smart Technology Center there. I'm really curious about why Colorado is such a hub for green building and green technology. What, why here? Colorado is such a unique, interesting place because not only do we have a ton of potential for solar and other green energy resources, but we also have you know, the only national lab that solely focuses on renewable energy. We have a ton of companies that are starting up that are focused on green energy technologies and sustainability. The community um, itself within Colorado is really built for these, uh, these efforts. And so it's a great place to be right now if you're in green tech. Which brings me to my next question, which is kind of the flip side. You know, Colorado clearly impacts the industry and research, but how does this industry and research uh, impact life on the front range? I'm thinking economically, culturally, demographically. More energy efficient buildings are just going to end up reducing electricity costs for consumers. So if we can think of ways to better condition the space, to better use clean power from the grid, we're going to start seeing cleaner air, cheaper prices, more comfortable spaces that we spend the majority of our day in, as Monsef mentioned. Yeah, to follow up with uh, Kyrie, just to let you know that uh, the uh, sustainable building industry now in the U.S. employ about 3 million. In five years, it expects it to be 4 million. The needs is there. Actually, our enrollment, for instance, in the architecture need program in the graduate level has doubled in the last two years, as well as in the undergraduate has been, has been increasing significantly the last few years. There's a lot of demand. Every uh, week or so, I get uh, industry looking for some uh, workforce engineer to hire. Okay? Typically, our graduate get at least a three to four offer. So there is a lot of potential for Colorado. Kyrie, do you think all of this research and industry activity that's going on in the green energy space is a draw for people, uh, perhaps students to the school? Absolutely. I can not tell you how many students who have come to me talking about how they want to make a difference in climate change. A lot of non-traditional students who have worked for years in industry come back because they want education on how to make buildings more energy efficient or renewable energy. So that's a huge draw. I've gotten tons of very, very high quality students um, here because of Colorado's resources in this area. What do we know about growth in the green technology economy, uh, you know, locally, but also nationally and internationally? It seems like we're at a, a moment, a precipice with the climate crisis where there's a lot of potential for growth in that space. Buildings and energy grids in general are a nexus for a lot of different green energy technologies. So Mons, I've mentioned transportation. We can now have electric vehicles that charge at home, which is primarily where people charge their electric vehicles. We can use bi-directional chargers to have your EV act as a battery for your home. So you could power your home during a huge winter storm where the main grid is out. And we're talking about community scale resources. So instead of people just installing solar panels on their roof, we're getting economies of scale where we can get community solar, people can start sharing energy. And it's really becoming this climate revolution 
Whereas before we used to just think of buildings as this place to sleep and you know, work during some other times of our lives. I'd like to wrap up by asking each of you, and I'll start with you, Monsef, when you envision a green, energy-efficient community, what does it look like? Obviously, energy-efficient community, for us, meaning a combination of uh, smart technology as well as on-site power. So we combine energy efficiency as well as what we call adaptability, to renewable energy. So for me, the future of building as well as community is that it will be reliable on itself, meaning in terms of at least the energy, it can uh, generate on-site all the energy it needs. I think a green community to me really means the ability for the community to be flexible and resilient. So right now, communities are pretty static. We're just consuming power, drawing it from the grid. If the grid goes out, too bad. When it needs to be flexible is on-site generation, as Monsef said, sharing resources, being able to have consumers that are knowledgeable about what in their house or building consumes the most electricity and how they could potentially, you know, change the way they use that to save money and to help the environment. So that flexibility is really going to be key in that dynamic nature of the community rather than just a static thing. Monsef Cardi is a professor of engineering at CU Boulder and the director of the new Building Energy Smart Technology Center. Kyrie Baker is an assistant professor of architectural engineering at CU Boulder and a faculty member at the Best Center. Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we explore the impact of a shortage of school bus drivers on kids, parents, and the other drivers. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.